IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. And yes, we are back after a two-week absence. I'm still Paul Lucas, Managing Editor of Insurance Business, and my apologies for the disruption in our weekly rhythm. I was otherwise engaged in the captivating world of mortgage. Uh, But now I'm back, we're back, and we're here in style, because not only are we welcoming a CEO of a global MGA, one that has a presence in pretty much all of the insurance business markets, uh, But that man is also the founder of that firm, a company that he's been running now for more than two decades. Uh, I'm talking about none other than the CEO of CFC Underwriting, Dave Walsh. Dave, welcome to IB Talk. Thanks very much, Paul, and thanks for the lovely introduction. So Dave, 20 years in this role, that in itself is an amazing story, but tell us a little bit about your background. What did you do before forming CFC? So, um, like so many people in our industry, of course, um, I fell into insurance being one of the poor people who just didn't really have a clue what I wanted to do in life. <laughs> um, so my first job was at Marsh uh, in London, where I was a sort of UK PI broker, and I was there for a few years. And then uh, I, was very, I was very fortunate to get a job with David Howden at Howden Insurance Brokers, which, of course, looked nothing like the business it is now. I was literally employee number 12, would you believe it? I think there are more than 5,000 people there. Um, so, of course, that was a great privilege because I could see a business like that right at the ground as a startup business and a business that was really designed to take on you know, the, the big, the big um, brokers um, and could see that that was achievable. So that, that was a great journey. And then I was lucky enough to get a job as the in-house underwriter or professional indemnity underwriter at a broker in Israel. Uh, and this was the late 90s, 1997, 98. So I went over there really assuming I'd be sitting there and underwriting sort of lawyers and engineers and insurance brokers and those sort of businesses that buy professional indemnity. And of course, this was the dot-com boom. And this is when technology was really exploding. So in fact, what happened is we ended up sort of becoming the experts for uh, insurance for technology companies, um, which of course was a was a was a, a really great uh, time to do that. There were these amazing uh, Israeli technology companies like Checkpoint that were listing on Nasdaq. Uh, so it was a really exciting time, and that really that was where I had the idea to set up CFC. Well, just just to backtrack just for a second though, because obviously <laughs> you talked about being in Israel. Just tell us what it was like uh, for you personally to be out there. Was it a, a bit of a culture clash? How did you settle in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could certainly say it was a bit of a culture clash. It was an interesting time to go to Israel. Um, you know, I grew up in Putney in London um, and in Israel in those days, you, you carried a gas mask everywhere you went um, and you, you live in a building with a, with a bomb-proof shelter. So, yeah, you could certainly say it was a, a culture clash, um, but it, it, you know, more importantly, it was an incredible stage in my life. Um, uh, uh, I think, you know, leaving your, going out of your comfort zone. I'd worked in London to that time, of course, going out of your comfort zone and also getting closer to the customer, being a real retail broker with these fast growing technology companies that were listing on NASDAQ, you know, amazing businesses. Uh, was, it was a great experience. I'm not convinced that there are no bomb-proof shelters in Putney. Um, <laughs> so, did you see? <laughs> yeah, did, did you see then a, a gap in the market? Is that why you formed CFC? 
Yeah, I suppose so. So I, there I was sat in Israel, um, you know, and obviously making my specialty insurance for technology companies. There's the dot-com madness going on all around the world. And this new concept of cyber insurance sort of popped up. Uh, and, you know, I came back to England. Hiscox were um, sort of dabbling um, with cyber insurance in the UK. And AIG were dabbling with it in, in the US. Um, but of course, you know, as an industry, when we have a new class of insurance emerging, we're so cautious. You know, we charge such high prices. We force our customers to jump through sort of fiery hoops to get the cover. So really the dream of, of the predecessor of CFC, of Click for Cover, we were called then, the dream was to try and smash that cautiousness and to, to, to explode, to, to really get to critical mass in the SME business space. Uh, and, and, and try and fast forward um, the growth of that market. Um, so really the plan was to sell, um, you know, would you believe it, back in 99, 2000, to sell cyber insurance, which was a, a product that no one even knew existed, let alone wanted, and to sell it online, you know, when, in a day when people had only just got their head around buying a book online. Um, so, you know, that business plan as it stood didn't, didn't, didn't work. It was too far I mean, if you're being kind, you'd call it ahead of its time. <laughs> if you're being unkind, you'd call it stupid. Um, but it was certainly ahead of its time. Um, but we sold enough policies um, and, we, and we ended up, of course, you know, just morphing into a much more traditional business, um, a much more traditional business selling policies through good old-fashioned insurance brokers with good old-fashioned proposal forms. And there were enough early adopters of cyber. You know, they were themselves the dot-coms, and maybe the high hazard businesses like banks and payment processes and things like that. Well, talk to us a little bit about what those initial conversations were like around cyber, because as, as you said, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a new concept and people, well, the insurance industry in general is, is normally a little bit slow to, to sort of adapt to these new concepts. And I think for the potential buyer, for the client, I mean, some would argue it's it's a tough sell even now, even with this sort of, you know, the, all of the media attention that the cyber attacks and so on get. So how did you overcome that and, and sort of start to establish yourself in the market? Yeah, you're, you're right. It, it was tough for a, a really a very, very long time. And you're, and, you're, and you're still right to a certain extent. And as I say, I mean, the early adopters were, were the people who would see that they have some risk, the dot coms, um, you know, whose, whose business model was 100% reliant on, you know, on connectivity and the high hazard companies, payment process, particularly payment processes, particularly uh, people like that. But I suppose ultimately we, we did have to diversify to survive. Uh, and we now have 24 business lines, but but cyber is still our biggest. Um, so, yeah, and it, 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 and it is still an immature class. I mean, there's that wonderful uh, quote from Bill Gates, which is people overestimate the amount of change in the next two years but underestimate the amount of change in the next 10. You know, in 1999, I thought, all businesses would be buying cyber by sort of 2005. <laughs> and here we are in 2021, and we won't even get to majority of businesses um, by 2025. Well, I was going to say, you must have really seen the, the product progress over this period of time, over the last 20 years. Um, do you see real, a real sort of difference in its perception in the market? I know you said it's still got a way to go. You're waiting for you know 2025 and so on, but... Do you feel as though it's now really starting to be seen as, as you know, a product that, that people need? 
Yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I think the interesting point is that over the last two years or 18 months or so, we should say probably, um, I think cyber's really had its coming of age moment, which has been the massive increase in ransomware claims. Uh, and that has in really quite a, a, a very quick period pushed up the whole market cyber loss ratios to the sort of levels that are, you know, more normal in other more mature um, um, business lines. Um, but the interesting thing is that at the same time, I think all, you know, most business owners are sitting at home working from home. Um, and they've been sitting home in the pandemic for some time and they've suddenly realized for the first time ever that a cyber business interruption loss um, is, a, is a bigger problem for them than a property business interruption loss. I mean, if you think about it, and I think this was sort of a new a new realization for a lot of people. You know, I run a, a white collar business here at CFC, and if there's a fire tonight in our office uh, in the centre of London, um, it, it you know it would obviously be quite an interesting <laughs> experience to say the least. But none of our critical assets would be affected. Our assets are our people, our tech, and our data, and none of them sit uh, at least at night uh, in our office in London. Uh, but at the same time. If, um, if, if our business was down for the next day or two and no one could get online, that would be a major issue for us. So I think a lot of business owners have sat at home and suddenly realized that for the very first time in their lives. And at the same time, they're also, um, I, I think most people know someone who's had a proper cyber war story, whether it's a ransomware event or a business email compromise or whatever. So there's this real realization that that cyber claims are real and they're real not just for big companies, they're real for SMEs. So of course what that means is we're in a market now where prices are rising really quite fast and most people's cyber rates are going up of the order of 30 or 40% and the penetration is growing really fast. So you've got a doubly fast growing market, which of course um, you know, is, it introduces challenges for all the market players. And, and, and talk to us, I mean, a, a little bit about your company's expansion as well, because we we reference how much cyber has expanded, but CFC has expanded with that. And of course, you've you've moved out into so many markets. Like I, I mentioned at the top, I mean, you're in Australia, you're in Canada, you're in the US. Um, talk to us about how you've been able to sort of manage that expansion. Sure. Yeah, we're in 24 business lines. Um, you, we're quite thoughtful in the business, or at least we like to think we're quite thoughtful in the business lines we're in. Really, our themes is anything to do with specialty insurance, emerging risks, particularly anything around the digital economy. Uh, and we really like to focus on the risks of the future, like cyber and intellectual property. We like to focus on the businesses of the future, like tech, new media, digital health, those sorts of things. And of course, we're really lucky because these, these by nature, because they're the, the risks, the assets, the, the businesses of the future, they tend to grow. And particularly even in the last year, of course, these have been the businesses that have proven to be pretty pandemic proof as well. So we've been lucky there. Um, so we have a, a lot of sort of tailwinds, if you like, um, powering our, our growth because of the areas we're in. And we're also lucky because being backed by Lloyd's, we can we, we have a few overseas offices now, but we're basically a business that's, that's that's situated in London, and we can trade in in pretty much the whole world from here. And we have we have customers in ninety countries, would you believe it? Who are all underwritten um, from this business in London. And we spent the last twenty years building effectively a, a proprietary technology 
underwriting platform or a global insurance platform, which means we can sit here, we can underwrite SME business in 24 business classes all around the world really very, very efficiently. Um, so, so that's that's really been the journey. So I, I don't know if that sounds simple or complicated, <laughs> and I'm sure it's both on different days of the week, but um, that's really what we've done. Well, is it a case that, you know, you target that sort of business line, those areas, like you said, the, the cyber and the tech focused and so on, because perhaps, you know, those areas are, are more accepting or, or welcoming of a relative sort of newcomer like yourselves, as opposed to wanting to stick with, you know, maybe for a car insurance or a home insurance, a, a more sort of traditional um, household name, if you want. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I've ever um, um, heard that question in that particular way before. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, that might be a, a, a happy coincidence if, if, if it is true. Um, you know, we don't select lines because they're necessary ones where we feel we'd be accepted. I think we select lines where we feel there's underwriting profit to be made uh, and we want to maximise, um, you know, our energy in those lines. Um, emerging areas uh, where there's complexities of product and all is really where we feel we excel. I, I'm much more interested, I mean, take take the digital healthcare space, um, which is obviously exploding right now with the pandemic, but was exploding even before the pandemic. Working out the exact requirements of a really complicated um, uh, biotech healthcare company who's implanting devices in someone's body and the and the cross-class insurance ramifications of that is really interesting. And when we launched a product specifically for that market over four years ago, when we still only have one competitor in the world today. So that's why we like that market, because it's a market where specialism really matters. Um, I... I'm sure if we wanted to be accepted in motor and we had a good proposition in motor, then then I'd like to think we could be successful there. But um, that's not really been what we've been about. And and on the theme of your expansion as well, obviously employee ownership has, has also been a real focus for you. Um, tell us how you've expanded that and, and what your thought process is behind it. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial part of our makeup, a massive part of what we do at CFC. You know, every day is about trying to build the right culture here at CFC, employ the right people, point them in the right direction, uh, and then let them get on with it. Uh, and we have an incredible group of people here. We've got real passion for the business and really care about what we're trying to do. So, of course, the way I see it is it's only right that at some stage in their career, uh, the right stage in their career, hopefully, they, they join us as shareholders in the business. And we are about 500 people now and just under 200 or 40% of them than are shareholders now. And we're yeah, totally committed to this wide and deep share ownership. And we really like, um, we're private equity backed and we love the private equity model, which is you know, every five years or so, you do a deal, you recut the equity and you get the next tranche of staff um, onto the shareholding register, which I just think is a really exciting people, uh, really exciting thing for, for everyone. Uh, and the great news is when we started out, we were owned 84% by the original dot-com investors and just 16% by the staff. And we've managed to, over the last two deals, to get to our third set of investors, we've managed to get that number to creep up to 60% now, which is something that we feel really, really great about. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic achievement, and 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 people who are, are sort of used to listening to us here at IB Talk, they will be familiar with the idea that I always reach out to um, whoever is our guest in advance and 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 ask them to sort of pinpoint an industry topic that we will talk about um, as part of our conversation, and and the topic that you chose, uh, Dave, was was data. So just talk to us a little bit about how key data is in your business, uh, particularly as an MGA. Yeah, it's absolutely key. Uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, our assets are our people, our tech, and our data. There's really nothing else. As I said, the building could burn down tonight, uh, and it wouldn't really affect us. Um, so, the more insight we can gain from our own data and third-party data, and there's uh, more data out there than ever has been before, of course, um, the better we can do our job. And I think that's true. Um, of everyone in our industry, frankly, but it's definitely true of us. And because there's a, a tough balancing act when we talk about data as well, isn't there? Because in, in theory, of course, we we want more data. Uh, you know, we, we want to sort of find out more about our customers and then we can, you know, personalize things and aim things directly at them. Uh, but we also want to ask less questions um, and, and make that sort of process of, of taking out an insurance policy a little bit less obtrusive. So how do we get the balance right? Yeah, you're, <clears throat> excuse me, you're absolutely right. Um, and of course, the other important point is that SME insurance is, is incredibly competitive. Customers hate long forms. I'm sure you hate long forms. I hate long forms when I'm filling out my uh, in- insurance forms. Um, and even more importantly than that, um, the whole market is entirely controlled by brokers and will be, frankly, for the foreseeable future or even beyond that. Um, and they wouldn't allow us to uh, um, ask lots of questions. So if our form was twice as long as our competitors, our, our brokers would tell us pretty quickly uh, what they think about that. Um, so... Um, the reality is the market doesn't allow us to ask our, our customers, particularly our SME customers, lots of questions. And it certainly doesn't allow us to iterate, to ask a bunch of questions and then go, oh, that's an interesting set of answers. You know, here are some more questions for you. Um, you know, the, the brokers, quite rightly, you know, um, the sort of margin they can earn on the sort of premium levels we're talking about here, they want as frictionless a transaction as possible. Um, but the great thing is that now, really for the first time in history, uh, we can actually ask less questions and learn more and more about the customer in literally just a few seconds. So at the really extreme end of what we do for a living, for our cyber customers, for our brokers who want to use our broker platform, and not all of them do, lots of them want our customers to fill out an application form and send it in. But for our brokers who want to use that, um, that, that platform, uh, we ask our cyber customers now, via our broker, literally just one question. What's your, what's your domain name? And then a few seconds later, they'll get a quote. This is, this is broker-facing platform, so the broker will get a quote, and a broker will also get all the sales uh, tools they need downloaded in a PDF in a few seconds with things like claims examples for a customer of that type in that country, limit profiles of what their peers buy, uh, um, claims types, um, the lot, you know, loss, loss um, um, profiles and everything else. Um, and of course, we're actually learning more about that customer in a few seconds because the old world where you um, actually asked your customer for sort of 30 pieces of information on a proposal form. And in the old world, a typical insurer would probably only store four or five of them in his structured database. Now we're asking that one question and then we're scraping the internet 
um, to learn everything we can learn about that customer. We scrape every single word of that customer's website. You know, in the old days, you'd have asked the customer, what do you do for a living? They'll tell you high level what they do for a living. We'll scrape every single word of the customer's website and then we'll know what they do for a living. Um, so there's loads and loads of things you can do. We can also check every word of their website against red flags, things we're worried about, things that make them more high risk than usual. Um, and so on and so forth. And of course, when the customers who fill out proposal forms for us, again, all these, this, this data insight technology is really spotting for anomalies. And you'd just be absolutely amazed the amount of fat fingered form filling there is. Uh, but again, you know, every, with every month that goes by, our systems get better at spotting that. Oh yeah, that turnover number that they gave us is clearly missing a zero, uh, <laughs> whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so again, you're just getting better and better information um, about that customer, which means you can just underwrite the customer smarter and faster. And ultimately, uh, smarter, faster underwriting drives better loss ratios, which is the ultimate long-term competitive advantage that we have, of course. Okay. Well, just to, to, to play devil's advocate, if I can, for a, for a minute, I, I guess the, the people who would perhaps sort of be against some of the concepts that you've just outlined there might say, yeah. well, you know, it's very good to sort of scrape the internet and so on, but there's there's nothing that can actually uh, match that sort of personal touch of sitting down with somebody and asking them directly these questions. And there's also perhaps some fears from from other people that might say well i don't really like the idea that a company is going to you know scrape and, and find all this information out about me I, I don't like that i just want to be able to you know answer a limited number of questions and and that be all the information that i give how would you respond to those two perhaps uh, arguments against this sort of process so I think, I think the first part of the question is slightly missing the point to us because um, in SME insurance, we, ha we have no opportunity to, to meet the customer. We don't talk to the customer. We don't meet the customer. That's the broker's job. The, the relationship between the customer and the broker is a very important one, but that's, that's the broker's job. That's not ours. Our, our job is to build relationships with brokers uh, and to try and help them uh, do the best job possible for their customers. So asking, they're very happy to ask less customers, oh, sorry, <laughs> excuse me, to ask less questions of their customers. Of course they are. It makes their job easier. Um, but none of these things are either ors, uh, which is possibly the more important point. Um, if, um, you know, we, we, we're predominantly an SME insurer, but, you know, even if you have big customers and, and, you, and then you might like to meet them and see the whites of their eyes and all that sort of stuff, why wouldn't you... Uh, why wouldn't you augment whatever you learn in that meeting with um, whatever you can learn um, using these techniques? Um, it's not an either or an or thing. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, but for the world that we play in, which is SME insurance, um, the broker is not inviting us to meet the customer. The broker wants as frictionless a, a transaction as possible. And the market wants that. Everyone wants that. Um, everyone wants everyone in the value chain to be more efficient and to therefore provide a better ultimate price for their customer. Um, there isn't the margin in SME insurance. You know, our typical customer probably pays £2,000 for his total insurance package. Um, there isn't the margin for people to do those, the sorts of things that you're referring to. 
Well, I was going to ask you, you know, about sort of how this would impact the the relationships in, in specialty lines, because obviously you talked to the about the broker, and you know that they will really sort of value the the relationships that they have with with the um, with the business customers. So, you think this is something that actually is going to ultimately work to the advantage of the broker? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we we certainly, I, I can't speak for the whole market, clearly, but I can speak for CFC in that uh, 100%, um, we have over 100,000 customers and not one of them is direct. We have 100% of our policies are through brokers. I, I think brokers um, own the SME customer space. Lots of people have tried to assault that and they've all failed. And I, as I said before, I think they will own this space for as uh, for as long as we can think uh, about. Um, and we think they're great value. And and they have a tough job. They have to meet customers. They have to learn enough about all those customers to sell them all the right insurance policies and give them all the right advice um, um, on the brokerage they earn. And then when they, when they send that packet of information to us, they want us to be as efficient as possible and to give them the best price as possible. And that's our job. And that's what we're trying to do. So, our, and our job is to have a great relationship with that broker. And obviously, that broker's job is to have a great relationship with the customer. Um, in the event of a claim, that does slightly change things because, of course, then there may come a moment, particularly with cyber instant response claims. We do that all in house now. Um, we think the model of doing that outside the house is is difficult. Um, um, and then, so then, of course, we're suddenly, um, we are very much customer facing at that point because the job then is how do we get this customer back up and back up and running as soon as possible? Um, so, of course, the less parties involved, the better. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. And, and, and Dave, we are, we're running a little bit short of time now. So I just yeah. want to ask you a little bit uh, away from this as to, as to what you'd like to get up to outside the industry. Because I imagine as a, as a CEO, as a, as a founder of a company, you don't have a, a great deal of time on your hands, but you, you are a family man. So tell us a little bit about how you escape the working environment. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I hope my family would agree with you. Um, maybe on a good day they would. Um, yeah, I, I do like to spend as much time as I can with the kids and stuff like that. And um, other than that, yeah, bits and bobs. Um, I am a, to my shame, I am a fan of the other uh, famous CFC, the Chelsea Football Club, and also, of course, of England. So tonight, I'm very excited. We'll be watching the England-Scotland game and hopefully reliving the time in 1996 when Gaza scored that wonder goal. And I actually was lucky enough to be at Wembley that day. Um and I'm very jealous for the people who will be there tonight. Oh, great experience. Um, Fantastic. Apart yeah. from that, I just can't stay out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, you've been a, a terrific guest. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Just uh, by my email, which is dwalsh at cfcunderwriting.com. Thank you very much, Dave. And, and thank you to everybody uh, for joining us today. Uh, we'll be back soon. And I'll talk to you next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.